Our scripture reading today is from Luke 15, 25 through 32. That's Luke 15, 25 through 32. Now his older son was in the field, and as he came and drew near to the house, he heard music and dancing, and he called one of the servants and asked what these things meant. And he said to him, Your brother has come, and your father has killed the fattened calf, because he has received him back safe and sound. But he was angry and refused to go in. His father came out and entreated him, but he answered his father, Look, these many years I have served you, and I never disobeyed your command. Yet you never gave me a young goat that I might celebrate with my friends. But when this son of yours came, who has devoured your property with prostitutes, you killed the fattened calf for him. And he said to him, Son, you are always with me, and all that I have is yours. It was fitting to celebrate and be glad, for this your brother was dead and is alive. He was lost and is found. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Thank you, TK, for reading that passage for us this morning. It's the second part of the parable of the prodigal son. Before we get into it, there's something unrelated that I want to mention, and that is that in about, in, in about two or three weeks, we're going to be um, announcing and guiding us through a, a different system for giving online. If you give online right now, um, we're changing the, the, the portal that we use for that. And so I'm, I'm letting you know now that in a couple weeks' time, we'll be, Trevor Pavey will be walking us through uh, that process. It's a great opportunity to, uh, to consider what you're giving here is, is like. Maybe you set this up a, a while back. Um, everybody in the church is going to be switching over to this new way of, of doing it, everybody who gives online. And so wanted to let you know that that's coming. Um, okay. Jesus is a master storyteller. He doesn't need me to tell you that, but he is a master storyteller not just for the ways that he captures the imagination, but for the ways that his teaching, uh, that his storytelling teaches and convicts. This particular parable, one of the things that's so interesting about it is, is a lot of the parables that Jesus tells are concise. Um, There's not a a ton to them in terms of narrative. Some of them are even like one or two verses long. Uh, You know, there there was a a man who built his house upon the sand and the waves and the winds came and the house fell with a great crash. Here you have a parable that goes on and on and on. Like it has layers, characters are introduced, there's far off countries, a famine happens. There's a party and a fatted calf. All of this is going on, and we spent some time last week when we looked at the younger brother, uh, and really time we've spent in every one of these sermons on parables where we've, we've stopped and just asked the question, why is Jesus telling this story? What is the context for this? And here, this particular parable, which is the third of a, of a series of three, if you remember, he opens you know, uh, Luke 15 by talking about a shepherd who lost one of his hundred sheep, and then a woman who lost one of her ten coins. 
And then, so it's these three stories of a lost thing being found with the stakes getting incrementally higher, 1% to 10% to now a father with, with what seems on its surface one of his sons. But then we read today's passage and we realize, oh, it's actually both of his sons. Jesus would use stories as a way of getting to the heart of things. In this particular story, we learn in the context that Jesus is telling this because he was welcoming sinners and tax collectors. Sinners and tax collectors were flocking to him to hear him. And then the Pharisees and the scribes, the religious leaders, were looking at Jesus and they were upset with him for having room for the sinners and the tax collectors. And so he's got both of these groups of people. He's got the sinners and the tax collectors, the scribes and the Pharisees, and he's telling this parable and it's to both of them. And it's bringing them both in to the story even more deeply. And so he tells the story, it has at least two false endings before we get to the actual end of the story. So the story is a father has two sons. And Jesus really kind of begins by focusing on the folly of the youngest of the two who goes to his father and asks for his share of the inheritance early. Which is an affront, it's an offense, it's, it's disrespectful to the father. It's a way of saying to the father, I want your stuff, I don't really care about having you. So I want just my part of the inheritance now as though you've already died and I'm going to leave. And I'm going to take it to a far country and I'm going to spend it. And so in an unbelievable turn of events for his hearers at the time, the father grants the request and he liquidates part of his estate. This is addressed his son, Cash, and off he goes. Now Jesus is addressing the Pharisees and the scribes as well as uh, these sinners and tax collectors and he's drawing them all in by telling the story of not one son but two But you look at it and you think, well, the younger son is clearly the point of the story. And we might even say that because we know this parable as the parable of the prodigal son, right? It's even kind of in the title that this is just a story about, about him. And he squanders his money, wild living, and then he comes to his senses. And that brings us to the false ending number one. And that is this idea that the younger son hits bottom, ends up feeding the pigs for a Gentile, and he comes to his senses. And the moral to the story here is, listen, if you're going to just willfully engage in a life of sin, it will lead you to ruin. So don't do that. And that ending of the story would have really pleased the Pharisees and the scribes. Because they would have heard Jesus say that and they would have said, exactly. These sinners that are coming to you, you scare them straight. But then Jesus continues the story. And he says, the prodigal comes to his senses and he begins to hope that maybe there's some mercy left in his father. And so he heads home, and he heads home, he's not going to present himself as a son anymore. He knows that that ship has sailed. But he is going to propose, maybe I could just be a servant in your home. And here comes false ending number two. 
And that is the father sees him when he's still a long way off. He's moved with compassion. He runs to him. He embraces him. And he welcomes his son back, not as a servant, not even with a reprimand, but with affection, with affection and a party. And he kills the fattened calf. And the significance of him killing the fattened calf means that it's not a small party. He's inviting his neighbors. What the father is doing is he's placing himself between this selfish, ungrateful, arrogant boy and a judgmental community. And he's saying to them, this boy is my son. He was dead and he's alive. And I'm inviting you to celebrate that with me. And in the act of celebrating that, they're agreeing. And so we might hear that and we would say, ah, I get it now. I get it now. The moral of the story is this. Yes, a life of sin will bring you to ruin. But there is always a heavenly father who is waiting to receive you back. If you would just come to your senses and come back to him, you will find that his mercy exceeds your expectations. This ending would have really pleased the tax collectors and the sinners. They would have heard this ending and they would have said, exactly. See, you Pharisees shouldn't be judging us. Our standing with God is between us and him. And he is more merciful than you give him credit for. But the story doesn't end there either. He keeps going past both of these potential endings. It doesn't end with the lost son repenting and the father rejoicing. And if we believe that Jesus isn't just rambling here, doesn't know how to land the plane, but if he's actually telling a story because he knows where it is that he's going with this, then it puts us in the position that once we've gotten past both of these false endings, that maybe the point of the story is the rest of it. Maybe the point of the story is the part that we read today. The part about the elder brother saying to the servants after hearing a commotion, what's happening? And them saying, your brother's back. And the father's killed the fat calf. And there's a party. And then the older brother has to do something with that. We're going to do something with that. We're going to walk through this response. Because the older brother, what we learn about him in this reaction is that he's blind. He's blind on three, front, three fronts. He, he's blind when it comes to his view of himself. He's blind when it comes to his view of other people. And he's blind when it comes to his view of his own father. And you can see the challenge Jesus faces here. Because he's telling the Pharisees about how lost they are. But since they're lost, can they even see what it is that he's trying to tell them? This is the power of a story. A story will slip so much past the gates of our defenses. It's like a, it's like a Trojan horse for truth. Tell the story, unfold the implications, and then after, pose the question, do you see yourself anywhere in here? We can really run the same risk as the Pharisees of just not having ears to hear. And so the question I want to ask us is, are you found in this story somewhere? Or will we just be the people who boo both the elder 
son and the younger son and be like, they're both just idiots. <laughs> you know, spiritual blindness is a huge problem among religious people. It's the religious people that can be the most blind when it comes to understanding the mercy and the grace of God. And so as we look at the elder brother, let's pray that Jesus would hold up the light of truth to us so that we could see our own blindness, not only in how we come to God in the wrong ways, but that he would reveal to us how to come to him in the right way. If you're here and you're an elder brother or sister as it may pertain, elder brothers and sisters are harder to spot than the prodigal. And the reason we're harder to spot is because we're not in the muck with the pigs. Instead, we are in the church. We're obedient. We've seen to it that we're hard to spot because we've worked hard. We've done what's expected. We've tried not to complain. When the elder brother or sister is most noticeable, is when the prodigal comes home. When the prodigal comes home and the father responds like this, and then you start to see this kind of darkness that is simmering under the surface. And given the right circumstances in your life, you may see it bubble up to the surface in you. Why? Because you're blind to your view of yourself, you're blind to your view of others, and you're blind to your view of God. And we see this in the parable, and he has these little tells along the way that reveal that he's blind. So let's start with his view of himself. He's blind in his view of himself. He doesn't see himself rightly. And he has a tell for this, like a poker player who scratches his nose when he has a good hand, right? He has a tell. And it's this. When the prodigal comes home, he gets angry. He's angry. And in his response to the father, he reveals this view that he has of himself. Here's his tell. When the younger brother comes home, he refuses to be happy about it. He refuses to celebrate. He says to his father these words. He says, I have slaved for you all these years. I've never disobeyed a single command. And you've never even given me a goat. Now, there's so much in that statement. So much that he's saying. And, and if you look at it, you see he's framing how he sees himself in this relationship. I am a slave to you. And everything that you ask of me is a command. Here's what's so interesting about the way of framing it like that is that he's saying all of his labor in his father's house he considers slavery. All that his father asks him to do he considers command. It is a cold professional arrangement. And what he's showing is that he currently considers himself, he currently considers himself to be what his younger brother aspired to be when he was feeding pigs and starving. The younger brother said, I want to come home and be your slave and just follow your commands. And the older brother is saying, well, that's my whole life. That's who I am here. That's how he sees himself. 
And it's even more clear that he doesn't know where he stands in the eye of his father when he complains that the father has never even given him a goat. Because the father says to him, son, everything that I have is yours. This is not just the father being generous, like Mikasa Sukasa. That's not what he's saying. What he's saying is actually very literal. He's saying, son, everything I have is yours. Why? Because the younger brother has already taken his share of the inheritance. Everything that the father has is his. This is where it starts to get really twisted. Because the father is saying, son, you never asked, but if you asked, I would have given it to you. And this is a key tell for the elder brother. You're not sure where you stand, and so you don't celebrate anything. You don't celebrate, and then you hesitate to ask for anything because you just assume that the father is going to withhold, that that's his posture with you, is he's just going to withhold. And instead, you try to maintain your standing with God through staying around and doing what's expected. But it's joyless for you. When you look at yourself, you say, I'm not your beloved son, I'm just one of your servants. And all you're giving me is commands to follow. And the reason it's joyless because that's how you see yourself. You see yourself as a slave to the Father's commands, and it's obedience that determines the Father's favor toward you. And Jesus came to upend that thought, that God's posture toward us would be based on our performance before him. Because what Jesus is here to show us is that's only going to condemn you. What we need is grace. So he has this view of himself that in his father's house, he's just a slave following orders. But then he has this view of others where he's blind there too. Because you can't be blinded in your view of yourself without it affecting your view of other people. If you believe that your standing with God is based on your performance, even though you're unsure of where you stand, you will be fairly certain of where others stand. It's how you're going to find yourself on the map. You're going to say, I'm not sure where I stand, but I'm going to look around at people around me, and I'm going to see where I stand in relationship to them, and that'll at least let me know generally how I'm doing. And you'll spot yourself a lot of credit, and you'll put on others a lot of criticism. And you'll see somebody doing something wrong, and you'll feel good about it. You'll say, there's no way that person's a Christian. Not as I understand what it means to be a Christian. And then that hurts people, right? Because there's, there's not much more painful than being sized up and dismissed by somebody who's claiming to know who God is. But that's what elder brothers and sisters do. They can't help it. I'm going to find myself on this continuum of worthiness based on how I see myself comparing to other people on this continuum of worthiness, which inevitably means you're going to have to put people below you. And so what's his tell? His tell is this superiority that he has. It just flows out of him when it comes to his brother. The older brother's tell is that he's blind in his view of others by his superiority. It comes when he discovers that the younger brother has returned and the father is actually 
celebrating this. He's celebrating this. And so the elder son is in the posture of saying, I already know everything that I need to know about what this brother deserves. And so he fires at his father. And what does he say to his father? He says, this son of yours has devoured your property with prostitutes and you kill the fattened calf for him? It's not this brother of mine. It's this son of yours. He wants nothing to do with him. Why? Because what the prodigal has done in his mind is unforgivable. The way he's lived leaves him feeling like, hmm, whatever mistakes I might have made, he has to forgive because I've slaved for him all these years and I've obeyed all of his commands. But this son of his, who I grew up with, unforgivable. Why can't the elder brother forgive? Because we get what we deserve. That's why. We get what we deserve. And his brother got what he deserved. He got what was coming to him. He took his inheritance early. He squandered it. Now he has nothing good. Let him sit in that. Let him think about that for the rest of his days. He got what he deserved. But the elder brother is also expecting to get what is coming to him which was no less than the rest of everything that belonged to his father. Here it gets twisted again, because he's angry. Why is he angry? He's angry because every kindness that his father shows to his brother is coming out of his share of the inheritance. It's now costing him something. Why? Every robe is his robe. Every signet ring is his signet ring. Every fatted calf is his fatted calf. And all of a sudden it hits him. Every ounce of compassion that my father shows to the sinner of a son is coming out of my share of the inheritance. And I'm eating the cost. That's how he sees it. That's how he sees himself. That's how he sees his brother. That's the superiority. He's indignant about it because it's not right. He didn't leave home. He didn't disobey. Why should he pay for this? He's superior. He's entitled to what's coming to him. But here we see that he is no different really than his younger brother. In what way? He doesn't really want the father. All he wants is his father's things. Same with the younger brother. He's going about it differently. But all he wants is his father's things. He doesn't want his father. His father is nothing to him except for the person who gives him commands to which he then responds with obedience. And it's not panning out in the way that he thinks he deserves. But he can't see it because he can't see that he has a need to, that he needs every bit as much grace as his brother. So he's blind in his view of himself and that he won't celebrate. He's blind in his view of, his, of other people and that he has this feeling of superiority. He's blind in his view of God. If you're an elder brother 
and you're listening to this sermon and you drop out now, after hearing about your wrong view of yourself and others, then what you might just try to do is say, all right, it's time for me to just fix that too. I'm going to fix my thinking. I'm going to stop being such an elder brother. Will that make you happy? (laughs) But without this last part, this being blind in his view of himself, you're not only going to fail to do that, you're going to be even more lost. You're going to be lost at home. That's the worst way to be lost, is to be lost at home more than you already are. So, so stick with me for tell number three. The older brother is blind in his view of himself and others because he's blind in his view of God. He tells us this. How? Here's his tell. His tell is that he, he uses his obedience against the father. You see, oh, oh, this obedience, this record of obedience you have, when, when, when this kind of situation arises, now you're using it against the Father, as if he owes you something. He's using his obedience against the Father. It's possible to be in the Father's business, obeying his orders, and still be a million miles away from his heart, and to be actually just lost at home, as though your home is its own kind of distant country. Because you see, for the elder brother, it's not his badness that's the problem. It's your goodness that's the problem. Because elder brothers and sisters are law-abiding people. But you know what else we are? We're law-hating people. I'll keep your law. I hate your law. We're law-abiding and we're law-hating We can't expect that God's commands are for our good when we're the elder brother. We don't think that they're there to help us know him better. Instead, it's just a map. It's a way. And what do we use these commands for? Well, we use our morality and our obedience to keep God at bay. Our goodness as elder brothers and sisters, doesn't just conceal our need for him, but we actually use it against God. We use it as a way to say to him, look, I've slaved for you all these years. I've kept all your commands. Leave me alone. And it's because we've been good that we object when he gives somebody else something that they don't deserve or withholds from us something that we feel we do deserve. Because we think it's an economy. See, the reason that the elder brother is the one who feels he deserves the party rather than the prodigal is because he didn't disobey. The difference between the elder brother and the Christian, see, is the elder brother keeps the law to keep God at bay. I obey the law so that God will leave me alone. But the Christian obeys the law because it's a way of drawing near to the lawgiver. It's a way of understanding that God has something good for me. He wants me to understand his heart toward me, and so he tells me to live this way. The elder brother looks at the commands of God and says, these are the burdens. These are the burdens I must carry in order to maintain my standing before him and my place in this pecking order. But the believer, the Christian, says, no, the commands of God are beautiful. 
in and of themselves because they're God's expression of love to me. He's showing me in my lostness how to live. Thank you for that. But in the elder brother's mind, God, even God's love is something that he gives just to get us to do his bidding. And in return, what he gives us is he should give us, he should give us a certain quality of life here on earth and afterwards heaven. But in that system, we would say, the elder brother would say, don't ever need anything from me and I'll try not to ever need anything from you. We'll just live in this kind of economy here. But then you look at the one who's telling this parable, Jesus, and you have to ask a question. What is Jesus even doing on earth telling this parable to these religious people? What's he doing? He's in the process of living a life of perfect righteousness and then dying in the place of sinners and then giving to those whose faith is in him all of his righteousness taking all of our sin upon himself so that when we stand before the Father, he sees us as robed in the righteousness of Christ. Why would he do that? It has to be because he loves us. There's no other reason. There's no economy here. It's that, it's that why would Jesus die for me? It must be love. It must be because there's something in me that he finds beautiful and worthy of that. When we begin to realize that Jesus loves us and that he loves us for who we are, that we're objects of his affection, that we're beautiful in his sight, then what we will begin to do is we will stop looking at his word and his command as slavery and servitude to keep him off of our back. And instead what we will do is we will begin to reciprocate by seeing him as beautiful. And then we will obey for who he is, not for what he gives us. The blindness of the elder brother is this. We believe that either we're good and therefore I'm good and so I'm worth something. Or we believe that we are sinful and therefore we are worth nothing. And those are the only two places we can be. And the message of Jesus Christ by his life and his death and his resurrection is, no, no, you are sinful. And you are incredibly precious at the same time. Both of these conditions run far deeper than you could ever imagine in your wildest dreams. You may have heard it said this way, that we are more sinful than we would have dared imagine, and yet we can be more loved than we ever dared dream at the same time because Jesus lived and died in our place. So if there are two false endings, what is the true end to this story? It's open-ended. It's brilliant. Jesus closes this parable with a father pleading for his son to come into the party. Come celebrate 
that this happens around here. Come celebrate that when a son is lost and then is found, it's as though he was dead and is alive and I rejoice. The elder brother doesn't know that the father is pleading with a lost son because he thinks he's home. He thinks he's where he's supposed to be because he's kept all the rules. But the father is pleading with the son, come into the party. Celebrate the lost being found. Celebrate mercy and grace. And then Jesus leaves it there. We don't know what the elder brother did. Which is the point. Why would Jesus do this? It's to ask us the question. Will you come into the party? Will you celebrate mercy and grace? Or will you look at the Father and in anger tell him, I've done everything you've asked me to do my entire life. And you've given me nothing but trouble. Or will our hearts break? And will we see the mercy and the grace on display? And we will say, I need this party. I need to celebrate this. I need to celebrate what it is that you do for sons and daughters who are lost, either through our flagrant disobedience or our rigid legalism where we snap you into a grid of an economy that we think that we can somehow afford. And the father is saying, just Just come into the party. Leave all that and come on in. How long will you refuse to enter into the Father's joy? Well, the answer depends on what you think is your need for grace. And the true end of the story for you may be yet to be told. So how will it end? Will you enter in to the Father's joy? Let's pray. Lord, I thank you for this parable. I thank you for the ways that it is layered. I thank you for the ways that the characters move in and out. I thank you for the way that you draw us in to wanting certain outcomes and to being challenged by other outcomes. Father, we confess that often uh, we, can, we can be elder brother types toward elder brother types, that we can be people who, um, who recoil at the idea that you would show mercy to the self-righteous. Help us to see the foolishness of that in our own lives. For those of us who may feel like it's easy to celebrate you showing mercy and grace to the one who squanders everything and hits rock bottom, and, and, and pleads for help and how we can be so judgmental and rigid in the ways that you respond to those who seem to be so locked up and uncaring. The elder brother types, help us to not be elder brothers toward elder brothers. Lord, would you help us to be people who understand that really what you're calling us into is cause to celebrate. It's a reason to celebrate. And that all of the language that you give us about the life to come is the kind of language that is a celebration. It's a wedding feast. And so, Lord, draw us in. And we thank you for your kindness. It's in your name, Jesus, we pray. Amen.